you got your Bibles, open to Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, and then 1 Chronicles chapter 3. Proverbs 30 and 1 Chronicles chapter 3. As you're flipping that direction, as we get ready for this, uh, for this study today, um, we will, after uh, this uh, particular sermon, we will officially camp out in 2 Samuel for the duration and work our way through uh, in the story of Absalom. But you got to understand the context of the family uh, that comes from David's genealogy uh, that we are about to read today. And so here's the deal. Most of the time when you read a family history or genealogy, it's not terribly interesting. This one's pretty interesting, all right? And you need to know, in the context of who Absalom is, his family situation was messed up, all right? Absolutely messed up. In fact, uh, what we're going to study today, the ups and downs and the twists and turns of Absalom's family, truly David's family, um, he was coming at this from a deficit from the very, very beginning. Now, I want to point something out before we get started in this, because we're going to talk about sin today and the effect that it has going forward, not just on you, not just on the people you love, but on future generations as well. You need to know that at any point through that cycle, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, when we cry out to him, our sin is forgiven for eternity. Hallelujah and amen. That's the overarching theme of what we're talking about. But when we don't give our sin to Jesus, it ends up a mess. And we're going to talk about that. One of the beautiful things about this story is David's family was a mess because of the sin that he committed, and yet God still did great things through his life uh, when he would repent. And so, again, great story as we go through this today, uh, and hopefully it will be helpful. All right, but it starts off with this question. You ready? Have you ever experienced a good thing so often that you forgot how blessed you were? Let me ask that again. Have you ever experienced a good thing so often that you forgot how blessed you were? Um, you, uh, there's, a, there's a point where we become oversaturated with blessing, then it causes us to forget just how special that blessing was. On the opposite side, when we get starved uh, for that blessing, then we long for it in such a way where in the beginning that longing is good, but that longing over time can actually become something that's sinful. So I'll never forget, um, growing up, uh, my dad uh, pastored churches, uh, was in evangelism, and preached all over the world, um, but uh, my mom had multiple different jobs. She stayed at home at different times. She worked at the family business, which uh, my, my grandfather on that side founded a print shop called Dennis Brothers Printing. My granddad and his brother founded it together. It was open almost 60 years, around 60 years. And uh, uh, my mom would, uh, from time to time, work there. But her big job that she had uh, was she would flip houses. And so this is back before it was cool and like TV series on HGTV and all that stuff. Uh, and she wouldn't flip uh, like uh, she wouldn't flip multiple houses. She would flip our house. And so what we would do is we would buy a house. Mom would buy a house that uh, was uh, was pretty beat up and in rough shape. And then through the magic of paint and wallpaper and uh, drywall and all sorts of fun stuff, she would figure out how to turn that house into something uh, beautiful that she could sell for even more money. And so we moved several times. But the first time that we moved, I was about 11, 12 years old, and we moved to a house that didn't have many blinds. All right. Have you ever lived in a house before that didn't have blinds? Some of you live in one today. All right. Blinds are expensive, people. All right. And over time, uh, it just takes a little bit to do. So I'll never forget, I'm 11, 12 years old. And uh, my mom comes in and says, Zach, we're doing some work on the house. We can't afford blinds this first round. But there were some windows that absolutely needed to be covered in my room and other parts of the house. I said, so what are we going to do? 
And mom says, well, instead of blinds, we're going to get some wax paper. And so we got wax paper and put them up over the windows. We didn't go full tinfoil, all right? But we did the wax paper up over the windows. And I'll never forget, I'm 11, 12 years old, someone who should not really care about blinds. But I remember vividly going over to one of my friend's house at 11, 12 years old. And I was like, hey, man, you got some pretty amazing mini blinds over here in your room. And I remember he was like, what are you talking about mini blinds? And I was like, bro, you don't know until you don't have them. You know what I mean? You just got to cherish those things. And so all that's to say, why did mini blinds matter to an 11, 12 year old? Because I didn't have them. I was blessed with them. And then all of a sudden they weren't there anymore. I also had an incredible gift. God gave me two sets of spectacular grandparents and I got to grow up in the same town with both of them. Uh, both my sets of grandparents lived in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, and because of that, they were at every football game. They were at every baseball game. In fact, sometimes they'd show up at practices just to be around. And at the time, I can remember thinking, oh, why are they here, right? Oh, why are they doing this? It just makes me nervous having them around. And now I look back, and all but one of my grandparents has passed away. And I look back and I just can't believe how blessed I was. Oversaturated in the blessing at the time. But man, I'd forgotten just how special it was. Not until you're starved do you realize how special that is. I want to show you a passage of scripture. It's one of my favorites and it doesn't get taught very often. This is Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 through 9. And especially for where we live here in D.C., this is a very powerful word. Look at what it says here. Saying of one of the kings... It says, two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Man, what a lead in for this. You ready? Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. The first thing is he says, give me the truth. And now look at this and give me neither poverty nor riches. Underline poverty nor riches. He says, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now stop right there for just a minute. What an interesting thing for a king to pray. And can I tell you why that's interesting? Because this king could have taken as much as he wanted. He could have instituted taxes. He could have uh, taken from people. He could have instituted things that people had to give to him or, or pay tribute to him. And instead, he says, there are two things that I desire. The first is let the truth always be before me so that I can make a good and educated decision. And the second, he says, make sure I'm not so wealthy that I forget that I need God every day. What a powerful word. And then he says, "And Lord, don't give me so little that I think of breaking your law, dishonoring you, in order to get through the day. Lord, I beg you, help me live in a place where I depend on you always. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? In times of great excess or extreme desperation, it is incredibly tempting to live like there is no God. Let me say it again. In times of great excess or extreme desperation, it is incredibly tempting to live like there is no God. It's a very, very powerful thing for us living in the country we live in, in the city that we live in, to remember. It's a blessing to not have too much, and it also is a blessing to have enough that you are able to go through life without breaking the law. Um, it's a weird thing the way blessing works. 
When we get oversaturated with blessing, we forget how important that it is. A story that's always stuck out in my mind or to, uh, to illustrate that had to do with my dad when I was growing up. My father, um, he uh, had a time, uh, this was 1986, felt called uh, to go overseas to Romania when it was under communist control and to smuggle Bibles uh, into Romania. And so there was a group of pastors that were doing this, going over as tourists, but the goal was to bring these Bibles. And so after a few days over there, they got caught by the secret police. I'm five years old in 1986, and one of my first memories at the house in Graham, Texas on Thomas Lane, this is back before cell phones, kids, all right? And so back in those days, everybody got to hear everything going on on the phone conversations because you couldn't take a call outside or in a closed-off room. There was one telephone, and it was on the wall in the kitchen. You remember that? Wall in the kitchen phone, and there was a huge long cord because this is before all the wireless stuff. And so instead, that wire could be taken all these different places, but you still knew exactly where the person was talking on the phone. And so sure enough, this particular day, mom gets a call. It was late at night. And I remember I get up, I'm five years old, and I hear my mother crying in the other room because they said they had picked dad up. And I remember her saying over the phone, they think he's dead. And here's the deal. I don't know what was said, but I remember even before I was a believer in Jesus Christ at five years old, I remember thinking in that moment, my father is dead, and he died for his faith. He died for his beliefs. And again, I just vividly remember that. Well, praise God, through a set of circumstances, um, dad actually, even though he was caught, even though he was interrogated and some awful things took place, uh, they decided to deport him back to the United States. Never been so happy someone was deported in my entire life, all right? <laughs> dad gets deported back to the States, and they tell me, that my father, who I thought was dead, is about to walk through the door of the house. So here's what I do. We had this little glass in the front, and I sat at the glass and waited for dad to show up. I mean, for an hour and a half, I'm there just waiting like a puppy dog. I can't wait for him to walk back through the door. The dad I thought was dead is alive and coming home. And I remember they pull up in the car, it pulls into the driveway, and I can't contain it any longer. I run out of the house, and before dad can even get out of the car, I run up and I grab hold of his leg. He's still half in the car, and I'm holding on to his leg. And he goes, son, you got to let go. And it was like the movie Titanic. I'll never let go. I'll never let go, right? He goes, son, you got to let go. I got to come in the house. And I go, I'll never let go. I'll never let go. So he peg legs me into the house, right? I get into the house and then dad says the magic words. He goes, but son, you have to let go because I brought you a present. Now, before he'd gotten in trouble, he had bought a t-shirt at the airport. And so at that point, when he says the magic words, I've got a blessing, I've got a present, all of a sudden, my grip loosens, and I'm like, oh, a present? Gimme, 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 right? At that point, he hands me the present. All of my being has been in devotion and focused on him, but once the gift comes, all of a sudden, my focus and devotion is on the gift, even something as simple as a t-shirt. I then turn away and go to my room to play, where I had said, I'll never let go, I'll never let go, nothing could ever make me let go, but a blessing... A blessing does split our devotion from time to time. Now listen to me. Is it wrong for a dad to bring a son a gift? Absolutely not. It's a beautiful story. And in fact, our Heavenly Father gives us so many gifts. But we've got to know the blessings that he, give us, that he gives us are so that we can know him more and so that we can have deeper relationship with him. It must be unwavering that our focus and devotion are upon him. Otherwise, that blessing pulls us away 
And then the only thing God can do to get us back is to take it away. You ever taken a blessing away from a child before? It's not pleasant. In fact, for those of you who don't have kiddos, that term like taking candy from a baby, try taking candy from a baby. The idea of that saying is it's a lot harder than you think it's going to be, all right? You ever done that before? It's the reason that grounding works. You take something away from a child, and they get furiously angry. With Zeke, our little four-and-a-half-year-old, Zeke is one of those. He's the kid who is obsessed with food. I mean, he would eat the shoe off his foot if we would let him. He's that type of kid. First thing he ever did was learn how to pull. He was the only one of our four kiddos to do this. He learned to pull the chair over to the refrigerator. And from the time he was three, he would like climb in to get food from the refrigerator. And so for him, anytime he's in trouble, we're like, no, he loves white rice. And we're like, no, no more white rice for you. And he's like, what? I mean, freaks out <laughs> taking rice. I never thought I'd be that parent. You're grounded from rice. I mean, it's just very strange. All that to say, you take something away from a kid. They don't watch the gift. When a gift is given, your eyes go to the blessing. When it's taken away from you, your eyes go right to whoever it is that's taking it from you. My son gives me the death glare. How dare you take my stuff? It's interesting. Passage says, Lord, I pray that I would never have a day when the truth was far from me, but when I forget how desperate I am for you every minute of every day. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to provide for me so that I can obey your law, so that I don't have to turn to thievery in order to survive. It begs the big million dollar question then for us today. How does a blessed life end up disowning or dishonoring God? Those are the two words that come to us from Proverbs 30. How does someone who is so blessed end up disowning or dishonoring God. This is a very applicable passage for those of you in this room today who are believers and very, very blessed, which by the way is all of us. If you are in this room today and very, very blessed, this message is for you. You ready? Now flip over. First Chronicles chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 addressing the question, verses 1 through 9 addressing the questions, how does a blessed life end up disowning or dishonoring God? Maybe, just maybe, for you today in this room who are believers, maybe this is the big red flag, the big caution sign for you so that you will not fall into the same problems and patterns that King David falls into. What we're about to read is the setup for an incredible judgment that comes on the nation of Israel and actually sparks civil war because of the passage that we're about to read. It didn't happen because of David's bad political decisions. It happened because of the mess that was happening in his family. Are you ready for this? Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, These were the sons of David born to him at Hebron. The first was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam in Jezre of Jezreel. Underline Ahinoam, a really interesting story there. The second was Daniel, the son of Abigail of Carmel. The third, Absalom, that's our main character, the son of Makkah, the daughter of the Talmai king of Geshur. Underline Makkah, the Talmai king of Geshur. It says the fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shephat, the son of Abital. And the sixth was Ithrim by his wife Eglah. Now stop right there for just a second. If you're playing our home game, that's six kids by six women, okay? 
Six kids by six different women. And this is the one that Scripture calls the man after God's own heart. Two things I want to point out to you before we start. Number one is that God can still use your mess for good things, all right? But sin is something we are to avoid at all costs, even if that sin was socially acceptable. It's at this point when you study David that people always come up and they go, was it really a sin because wasn't polygamy okay in the Old Testament? Polygamy was never okay. It was never something that was godly. And we're going to read those verses to prove it to you today. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does a blessed life end up disowning or dishonoring God? Number one, socially acceptable sins. Socially acceptable sins. If the Bible says it's a sin, then it's a sin. It doesn't matter how many people you get together democratically to vote whether or not it's a sin or not. Scripture is scripture, and it will always be the truth. It's God's rules for the universe, and it's how it all comes together. So a blessed life ends up disowning and dishonoring God because we rationalize disobedience. Now, just for the record, this is not your problem. It is our problem. It's something that everyone shy of Jesus Christ has to navigate on this earth. There are things that God's word says, and it comes in direct contrast with the desires of our flesh in what we want to do. The problem is when we look at scripture and go, I'll take that into consideration, but I don't know if I believe it for me or for the world around me. Just for the record, that's the way it's been since the very beginning. The devil's first conversation with Eve is, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The truth is twisted just slightly to rationalize disobedience. The Lord did not say they couldn't eat from every tree in the garden. He said not to eat from one specific tree. And in the process, Eve and Adam both together begin to rationalize disobedience, socially acceptable sins. If you're taking notes, write this down. There is no amount of human affirmation that could sway the rules God has written for the universe. He said again, there's no amount of human affirmation that could sway the rules that God has written for the universe. Polygamy was always short of God's perfection. It was always short of God's plan. And for any of you doing a study on David, this passage is a perfect picture. It caused a mess. And even pre-David, it was considered to be a wicked, wicked sin. If you don't believe me, save your spot in 1 Chronicles and now flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, and we're going to start in verse 14. For any of you politicos out there, this is a really interesting passage, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. It actually mirrors the way that our country does the inauguration. And so very interesting. There's no way that the forefathers didn't take this into consideration with the way that we inaugurate a new leader. And you'll see what I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Look at, first, or look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14. These are the words of Moses hundreds of years before David and Saul ever took the kingship in Israel. Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. 
Remember, this is Moses. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner among you and over you uh, that is not a brother Israelite. This is someone who shares their values, shares their faith, uh, and again, uh, understands who they are. We still again carry that rule here in the United States today. Verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself and make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, verse 17, he must not take many wives. Circle, underline, and highlight that because anybody who told you or preached to you or taught you in a Bible study that it was okay for David to take a whole bunch of wives because that was just that time period, go back to Deuteronomy 17, 17. It was not okay. In fact, it was cautioned for kings specifically in this passage. Look at what it says. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. It says, or his heart will be led astray. Verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, look at this. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. Circle, underline, and highlight. He's to write for himself a copy of the law taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. It is also to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. What do we do at the inauguration? The president brings their family Bible. Now, here's what's interesting. It says in this passage, the book of the law written in your own hand. This is before the time of printing presses. So what have they just said in this passage? Moses says, have them bring their family Bible, the one written in their own hand that they have dog-eared and turned over and over again because this is a part of who they are. Have them read it every single day that they might live this way. Verse 20, then not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he, and then his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. Now stop right there for just just a minute. If any of you believe that a socially acceptable sin changes throughout time, this passage lets us know it was always wrong from the very beginning. And yet, David dabbles in it anyway. The women that are listed, some were because Abigail, for example, was a widow in need. Her husband had died of a heart attack, and David takes her as his wife a few days later. But he was already married to the king's daughter. To Saul's daughter. Ahinoam is the weirdest story. Some scholars believe there's only one other time in Scripture that Ahinoam is mentioned, other than as the mother of, uh, of Amnon. She's, that name is mentioned as being a wife of King Saul. It is possible. I don't know if there's enough evidence to say with certainty, but it is possible at this table, this family table, you've got political marriages. You've got widows that are bringing different cultures and different portions to the table. And then you also have, in this circumstance, you've got some really weird stuff that would have caused people to cringe and go, really, this is so inbred, what's taking place here? Absalom? Absalom is in an absolutely unthinkable family scenario. What he is born into is an absolute mess. And in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord tried to caution it. Don't take multiple wives. If they're going to run the country, you don't have to do it through political marriage annexation. That's what's being said there. Trust in the Lord to be your defender and not in this weird marriage and weird family setup that you put together. Now, before we're too hard on them, I don't know too many polygamists in this room today, all right? But there's a lot of us. We all have our socially acceptable sins. And we have to know when we rationalize disobedience, 
we are on the track to forfeiting the blessing that God has given to us, to the people around us, and also to future generations. It begs the question, is public opinion greater than or equal to the weight of Scripture in your decision-making? Let me say that again. Is public opinion greater than or equal to the weight of Scripture in your decision-making? Now, again, for those of you who work in policy, I want you to notice that I didn't say public opinion didn't matter at all. It just has to be less than your adherence to Scripture. I know you have a job to do, and it's incredibly difficult to be you in this city right now. But the Lord has given you a path to do your job, but to live in your own life according to God's Word. Amen? Amen. His Word will always be the truth. And what He calls sin, whether it's voted on or not, will always be sin. You can't change the country by yourself, but you can live for God yourself. It's the reason that Joshua says it this way before the people of Israel, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the decision that you have to make. Not if it's voted on one way or another, then I will make my decision accordingly. Scripture has said, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, what is sin is sin. And it's sin because God calls it just that. Now flip back over to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 4, and let's see how this escalates a bit. He's got six children, six sons by six different women. And then all of a sudden, verse 4 It gives us a timeline. It says, These six were born to David in Hebron while he reigned there for seven years and six months. Underline that for just a second. He has seven kids, seven sons by seven different women in a matter of seven and a half years. I mean, that's a pretty intense stretch. At the end, it says, And David reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years. It's a good picture here that a good portion of David's reign had to do with him making these poor decisions when it came to his family table. If you're taking notes, how does a blessed life end up disowning and dishonoring God? Number one, through socially acceptable sins. And number two is through lifestyle sins. Lifestyle sins. If socially acceptable sins are rationalized disobedience, lifestyle sin is affirmed and repeated rebellion. This idea that not only do I believe that this sin is up for debate, but I also affirm those participating in it, and it is a repeated thing that I am dealing with over and over again. Now, just for the record, Christ's shed blood covers all sin, no matter how much it is, past, present, and future. The problem with lifestyle sin is lifestyle sin has effects down to the third and fourth generation. It imprints on your life that this, in any story that's being told, that sin all of a sudden becomes an overarching theme in that story. Have you ever met somebody in a circumstance that was a little bit less than great? And people look at you and they go, hey, you guys seem to be the best team ever. How did you meet? And you're like, well, that's a longer story for another day, right? Because here's the deal. It happened the way it happened. We all make mistakes, The problem with lifestyle sin is it becomes this overarching theme, this imprint on every story during that time period. Now, just for the record, nobody illustrates this better than a 90s sitcom, all right? 90s sitcoms, in order to save money on sets, they typically take place in one major location, 80s and 90s sitcoms, and then it moves from there. Remember MASH? MASH all happened in that same little spot, right? Every now and again, they would leave uh, the, uh, the government plot. They would leave the base. But for the most part, you stay right there in the same set in the same spot. Cheers. Where did cheers happen? At the bar, right? 
the entire series right there in between those four walls. You never even get to see the basement in the bar where they had the darts that were being thrown, right? You hear about it, you see about it, but you never got to watch it. For you people who watch Friends, where did Friends take place? Almost every conversation took place either in the house of the, or in the apartment of the girls or at what coffee shop? Central Park, right? All of it took place in those locations. To look back on those conversations and those stories, the overarching lifestyle theme was that it happened in those places. It happened in those spots. When I think back about college, I remember a few different places. The first place I remember was Red Lobster, all right? Four and a half years, waiting tables. Loved every minute of it, but I'm telling you, Red Lobster is imprinted on that time period, and y'all are punished with those stories almost <laughs> weekly. I apologize. But when I think back about that time period, I worked there for four and a half years, worked multiple shifts, and in fact, when I look back on that time, it's very difficult not to think of a particular day where I didn't work a shift or at least go up to eat at Red Lobster. We could always kind of, you know, bum around and at the end we could, get, uh, we could get free salad or at the end of the shift they'd throw away the baked potatoes. And so when you're a college kid, baked potato is a heck of a meal. As a grown man, a baked potato by itself is a heck of a meal, right? When I think back about that time, those pieces are a part of it. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Regular and repeated disregard for God's word distorts the gospel message and confuses our observers. Regular and repeated disregard for God's word distorts the gospel message and confuses our observers. Our blessing begins to disown and dishonor God. We disown and dishonor God in the midst of our blessing in many times because we start off by giving sin a foothold with things that are socially acceptable, and then all of a sudden it drifts into affirmed and repeated rebellion. If you've ever gotten to see uh, the, the musical Hamilton, um, I love uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, just, just the way that he knits words together, just amazing. And one of the lines when he's fallen into his affair it wasn't just a one-time affair. It was a sin of lifestyle. And do you remember what he says? I thought it was the last time, but it became a pastime. Remember that? It's the perfect wording to give you the example of how lifestyle sin works. It's not just sexual sin. It's any sin. I thought it was the last time, but it became a pastime. Repeated, affirmed rebellion from what Scripture calls the truth. And then it causes there to be this imprint on your life. Now, Christ's shed blood can wipe us clean of that. But it imprints this overarching sin on our lives that falls, not just to one generation, but it says in the book of Numbers, the sins of the Father fall to the Son and down to the third generation. You can break free, but you must adhere to whatever God's Word says is the truth. What did they say in Proverbs? Two things that I ask of you, Lord, my full dependence on you and the truth. I want the truth to be part of who I am. It begs the question, is there a sin you are affirming and repeating? Is there a sin you are affirming and repeating? Every one of us at different points could answer yes to that question. My question to you is, are you answering yes to it today? Is there something that you need to claim as sin, that scripture says is sin, that you need to stop affirming and stop repeating in rebellion. Now flip over 
to 1 Chronicles again, and let's look at 1 Chronicles 3, 5 through 9. Now, I need to ask for your forgiveness up front. Nothing harder for a pastor than to have to read through a whole bunch of names, all right? And so I'm going to read them to you anyway. Don't make fun of me, all right? Here, so here we go. You ready? It says, and these were the children born to him in Jerusalem. Listen to this. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These were the four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Emil. There was also Ibhar, Elishua, Ephlet, Nagra, Noga, sorry, Noga, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphlet. All right, nine in all. I did the best I could, people. I apologize. All right, you ready for this? Now, verse nine. All these were the sons of David besides his sons. Look at this. By his concubines. Underlined by his concubines. And Tamar was their sister. Underlined and Tamar was their sister. Tamar is listed here at the end because she is the sister of Absalom. And the sin committed in the house of David against Tamar that we're going to study in a few weeks ended up sparking civil war years down the line. Now listen to me. David starts by dabbling in multiple marriages. It all of a sudden erupts in multiple children by multiple different women, and it's created division within his own house. But he also sleeps with the concubines because if a king should be able to take whatever wife he wants, he might as well be able to sleep with whatever woman he wants too. And guess what they've just done? He's created classism in Israel where you have his family, you have the secondary family, and then you've got everybody else in the whole rest of the country. He's created a mess. And he's still referred to as the man after God's own heart. Do you know why? Because sin, God can deal with sin in our lives when we repent. But David in this circumstance has lived like he's the king and he answers to no one. If you're taking notes, don't miss this last point. Are you ready? How does a blessed life end up disowning and dishonoring God? Number one, socially acceptable sins. Number two, lifestyle sins. And number three, complete disregard for conviction. Complete disregard for conviction. Remember Deuteronomy 17. This was not cool. This was not godly. This was sinful, even though it was socially acceptable. And because David's the king, because it was socially acceptable... No one got in his face about it, and it caused a real, real mess. Nobody until Nathan the prophet shows up, and it caused a real crazy mess. If you don't take anything else today, I hope you take this little word. You ready? The conviction of the Holy Spirit is not a suggestion. Let me say that again. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is not a suggestion. You see, once we start to live in our own world, and we begin to put God to death in our lives on certain issues... All of a sudden it erupts into certain issues that we do every single day or that we affirm or that we speak on every single day. And then all of a sudden it takes a step to, you know what, I'm very blessed, really. Uh, seems like God would have struck me down for the mistakes that I've made to this point. Maybe he's not there at all. Maybe I don't answer to anybody. Maybe I'm the one who makes all the decisions for my life in this world. And all of a sudden it erupts to a point where there is nothing the Lord can do but illustrate why he wrote the laws of physics in the first place that what goes up must come down that when we've done wrong there is consequence for that wrongdoing 
I want to tell you a little story. And I've told you many stories on myself over the years. This one's about my brother, Sam. And uh, my brother is one of my best friends in the entire world now. We've gone through our ups and downs. Um, he is just one of my absolute closest friends. And Sam, if you're watching today, I love you so very much. Um, Sam illustrated this. We Randalls are pretty stubborn, all right? And uh, Sam illustrated this. I could have illustrated this other ways, but his story is one of my favorites. Um, Sam, when we were growing up, um, he's about 17 years old. And uh, one day, Sam comes in, and Sam had gotten a speeding ticket. And I'll never forget, Sam comes in, and he goes, I got a ticket, but I'm not going to pay it. And we go, you're not going to pay it? He goes, nope. The cop was rude. He said, not going to pay it. We were like, were you speeding? And he was like, I was speeding. But he goes, the cop was rude, and I'm not going to pay it. And we were like, so are you going to like go to court and fight it? And he goes, no. He goes, uh, I've just decided I'm not going to pay it. And we were like, it doesn't work like that. Like, you can't just decide not to pay it. And he's like, I'm not. He goes, uh, I'm just not going to pay it. He goes, they're going to understand. And we're like, they really won't. They won't understand. But then he just went through. And here's the deal. Six months passed. Nothing happened, right? A year, six more months pass. And then all of a sudden he gets pulled over, I think, for like rolling a stop sign, something small. All of a sudden, they got him in handcuffs. And they're like, young man, uh, it says that you've got a speeding ticket from a year ago. And Sam says to the officer, yeah, I decided not to pay that because the cop was rude. He goes, well, you could have shown up and debated it in court. He goes, now instead it's going to be like five times the amount of the ticket because of all the fees that are involved. And uh, he goes, otherwise, I could take you to jail. And my brother's response was, let me think about it. I mean, I'm telling you, that is a level of Randall stubborn that I can totally understand and identify with. At the end of the day, he ended up paying the ticket and avoiding the jail time, all right? But it wasn't a question of whether or not the law was going to get him or not. He got the ticket. It's under his license. He had to take care of it or he had to do the time. And you got to remember, God's word, it is what it is. It is what it is. I'm so sorry. Because I know it beats up all of us in that sinful flesh that's taken root within us. But when we choose to live against God's word, all we end up doing is illustrating why it existed in the first place. So I want to encourage you, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ today, you can be free, you can be new. And in fact, the mess that we read about here with David, the biggest joy that we have from this passage is that his life could still be good. He still could be used for the great things in the kingdom of God. We still celebrate David to this day. But David had to come to a point of repentance when he owned that it was still sin. It begs the final question, do you submit to biblical authority or is it just something that you take into consideration? Do you submit to biblical authority or is it just something you take into consideration? I want to read you one last passage of scripture and we'll call it a day. Flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 and I want to read you verses 7 through 9. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, here's what the Apostle Paul has to say to the believer that gets caught in sin. Here's what he says. He goes, you were running such a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. 
You see, when we get away from the truth of Scripture, just a little yeast works its way through the whole batch, and then it affects everything in our lives, not just the blessings, but our family relationships, our friendship, our family relationships, our friendships, our involvement in the community, our involvement at work, a little disregard of something scripture calls sinful, all of a sudden works its way through everything. We can't control the way that society comes together, but for you and your house, you must make the decision that you will serve the Lord. If you don't, you become an illustration of consequence. I love you enough today to tell you the truth, okay? Now we know where it is that Solomon's or that Absalom is coming from, and he gets to work with the mess, and he has every opportunity to repent. He just chooses not to. It's a tragedy of tragedies. Don't let this be your story. Claim Scripture to be the truth. Let's bow our heads for prayer.